This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. You can see why people are confused. Dietary information is extremely complicated. I agree. I grieve over how confused the message... I mean, when I think what the public reads in headlines on magazines and the internet and all, they are doing what I think they should do, throw their hands up and say, these guys are fighting, they can't figure it out, I'll just eat my pizza. Hello and welcome to the Llama Podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama Live Long and Master Aging is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Now, is it true that 80%, perhaps 90% of all chronic health problems could be resolved through simple diet and lifestyle changes? Well, my guest today is Dr. Joel Kahn, a cardiologist from the U.S. state of Michigan. Joel is the founder of the Kahn Center for Cardiac Longevity and a professor of medicine at Wayne State University School of Medicine. He is a prolific writer and speaker, and at the heart of his philosophy is the idea that plant-based nutrition is the most powerful source of preventative medicine. Dr. Joel Kahn, welcome to the Lama Podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here as your guest. That is quite a claim about plant-based nutrition. Just the facts, ma'am. That's all we talk about is science and the facts. Uh, Eat your fruits and vegetables. Mom was right. And it seems so simple. Maybe too simple? You know, it's not sexy. Um, I was advised a few years ago by David Katz, head of preventive medicine at Griffin Hospital at Yale, very well-known guy that you'll get, you'll bore the public if you say every time you're on TV and radio, eat fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, legumes, water, and green tea. But uh, it is actually the health message America needs to hear because it's not being embraced, at least at the leading places it should be embraced, like hospitals and uh, big institutions. So I'll keep saying it until we get it. Right. And the thing that I keep saying several times on this podcast is, and it's the conclusion that I've reached after a number of documentaries and stories on this subject, is that moderation is everything. And and, and moderation in diet and in exercise, and especially when it comes to extreme exercise, moderation, if you apply that rule, you're in a pretty good course. You're in a better course than extreme junk diet, I agree. But I actually, my my own little moniker that I don't yet have on a t-shirt or a coffee mug, but I'll send you one when I do is extreme in diet, moderate in exercise, and abundant in love. Because I actually think it takes extreme care, effort, and preparation to actually eat very well. And it's more difficult today than it was 50 years ago because we're battling more influences. It's not just fruit and vegetables. It's toxins, pesticides, organic, GMO, you know, it's the whole gamut. So it takes, I think, part of the confusion the public has and the medical world has is like you need a PhD in nutrition and that doesn't guarantee that you're necessarily still going to get it right. But it is a challenge. Well, let's talk about that and we'll get into it in some detail. But uh, I'd like to just talk about you and uh, certainly tell your story as, uh, as far as it goes to here. How did you get to the position where you are now? Where did you train as a doctor? Yes, I um, grew up in suburban Detroit and uh, was destined to probably join the family furniture business, but had a little uh, bug in my heart for medicine and and cardiology in particular, I had a little heart murmur as a child. So I visited a pediatric cardiologist once a year who was holding a cigarette in one hand and me in the other because this was in the early 60s. Uh, it was a sign of the times when smoking was still felt to be part of uh, a healthy lifestyle. Uh, and there's lessons to be learned from that. And uh, I was accepted at the University of Michigan into a program where you did undergraduate and medical school combined in six years. So at age 17, I had to choose furniture business or you know, a, a get-out-of-jail-free pass to get into medical school right away. And I took the medical route, never looked back, uh, and have had a wonderful time uh, as a physician, as a heart specialist. Um, on that first day, an important quick little tidbit, I was keeping kosher, the dietary rules, and I just didn't mix milk and meat and such. Uh, the first day, undergrad, University of Michigan, I adopted a vegetarian lifestyle because that's how you could get through the dorm is mainly eating at the salad bar and a couple Indian restaurants in Ann Arbor. And uh, I was with my girlfriend. She's my wife of 36 years. We did this exactly the same day and have never looked back. So my last hamburger was 1977. My last uh, egg omelet was 1977. 
it's 40 years now. Um, along the way, I trained in interventional cardiology, the three-in-the-morning heart attack type of aggressive cardiology. I trained at actually the highest volume, most aggressive center in the world in Kansas City. And when I returned, my first job was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right back close to home. And three weeks after I started my job, Dr. Dean Ornish published the Lifestyle Heart Trial, a, uh, a really paradigm-shifting uh, piece of quality science that said it was possible through lifestyle centered on nutrition, yoga, meditation, social support to actually reverse advanced hardening of the arteries. And I read that the day it came out because we didn't have the internet. We had paper journals that came to my mailbox. And I was eating that diet and somewhat living that whole lifestyle and said, wow, I had a tool in my medical toolbox I didn't know about. I thought I had balloons and stents, so now I have forks and spoons. And really since 1990, I've followed both paths, be a traditional doctor. And initially, it started to be a nutritional doctor, but it's merged into a whole lifestyle and integrative approach. So you have been living the lifestyle pretty much from the beginning. And uh, I asked this question because I've, I've asked a number of, of doctors that we've talked to about the kind of training that you had at medical school. Some have said to me, oh, well, yes, I actually had to forget half of it because I've come to learn that it doesn't necessarily tell the full story. There was very little education about nutrition and exercise when I was a medical student, they yeah. told me. Well, I had hours and hours and hours of nutrition training in medical school, said no doctor ever, <laughs> to put the end of the meme there. And it was true with me. I, at University of Michigan, was an incredible place to train. I went on and did my cardiology in Dallas, Texas, where the Nobel Prize in Medicine had just been awarded to Dr. Brown and Goldstein for identifying the LDL cholesterol receptor on liver cells. So nutrition, and Dr. Scott Gundry, nutrition was huge right then, and cholesterol hypothesis was huge right then in Dallas for the next few years, but it's the barbecue center of the South, and no, I had no nutrition training there, nor in Kansas City, where I did interventional training, the uh, true barbecue center with, you know, KC Masterpiece barbecue sauce and all, so I really don't remember a single piece of education to the time that I began practice 1990, but in all fairness, there wasn't that much seminal science. I could have learned about the seven country study. I could have learned a little bit more about Framingham and probably learned a little bit about Framingham. But Ornish and subsequent radical thinkers and scientists had not yet put their data out. But I'm a professor at two medical schools now. It's just starting to improve 27 years later. So let's get into some of the detail. And I mentioned that statistic that I've seen that you have quoted before 80 or maybe even 90% of chronic health problems that could be resolved through simple diet and lifestyle changes. If you could put your finger on the key two or three lifestyle changes that the vast majority of people, those uh, obese uh, Americans, let's say, should be looking at changing, what are they? Yeah, there's the big three and the little three. The big three are feet, fingers, fork, feet move every day. Fingers don't smoke, fork, eat very excellent and quality. We can talk about that, but I'm, I'm not specific in that, but it's very important to eat well every meal every day with rare exception. The little three are sleep, sex, and love, uh, and uh, enjoy you know the social support, the love, the connection, and good sleep, which has come on the scene as like a new status symbol. If you can say, I sleep seven to eight hours a night soundly, you know, that's better than a Bentley nowadays and, and more rare than a Bentley in the Midwest. Yeah, I was going to say, actually. Yeah, in L.A., you, right. <laughs> well, also, I was surprised that you put sleep as, as a little thing. Well, it's growing. I mean, really, the first study in the cardiology world that said seven hours of sleep versus five is a scientifically valid parameter to reduce heart attack risk significantly. It's probably five to six to seven-year-old data. Prior to that, it was it made sense, but it wasn't on the scene and, you know, multivariate analyses and such. It's called the Morgan trial. It's actually probably 2013, so it's only about four-year-old data. And plant-based nutrition. What, first of all, we hear this phrase a lot, plant-based diets. What actually does that mean? Right. So there's a vagueness to it. I like so is it is it deliberately vague to pe almost give people a bit of a get out and an excuse occasionally um, to eat other things? Well, it, it's probably der derived from the unpopularity, fair or unfair, of the term vegan. You know, in 1944 in Britain, in London, Donald Watson formed the British Vegan Society, the first official society dedicated to 
building a culture and a group of plant-based eaters exclusively. They actually had a big debate. They were going to call it the Dairy Band Society, and uh, they came up with other names. And then they just took the word vegetarian and shortened it down, came up with vegan. I'm not sure when. Uh, it incites certain physical response in some people. So I own a big restaurant in Detroit that's 100% vegan, but we don't put vegan on the window. They do in L.A. at some of the restaurants. It's, you know, it's crept on in, but a big meat-eating, weightlifting gym rat is never going to walk into a restaurant that says vegan. It might say healthy and gourmet. They'll walk in. So that's part of it. And, um, and part of it is, um, you know, plant-based uh, Mediterranean diet is plant-based and a very healthy option for most people. We have to talk about what's the authentic that gets us to Piope real quick. We talk about that a little bit down the road. What's the authentic Mediterranean diet? Um, there's a seminal study in this week in um, uh, the cardiology journals by the Harvard School of Public Health, Walter Willett, Frank Hugh, and these like – uh, major leaders where they took over 200,000 physicians and nurses, followed them for over 30 years on average. And they uh, had uh, every few years had very detailed dietary questionnaires that were filled out. Nobody had heart disease at the beginning. Over 8,000 people developed heart disease during follow-up. They identified those within that very large database that were predominantly plant-based. More than 90% of the calorie, according to their food frequency questionnaires, were plant-based. And they broke them up into healthy plant-based and unhealthy plant-based. Healthy plant-based ate predominantly fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts, whole grains, water, tea, coffee. Unhealthy was sweets, sugar beverages, low fruit and vegetable intake, processed food. They're all in the plant-based world. Overall, just selecting a plant-based diet lowered the risk of ever developing heart disease by 8%. But if you ate the healthy version, it slashed heart disease risk by a full 25%. If we could cut right now heart attack risk in the United States, UK, and other places, 25%. I mean, that's hundreds of thousands of lives a year. But if you ate the unhealthy version, the stinky version, the, the Diet Coke and Pringles and Skittles version, it actually increased heart disease risk. So um, that points out a lot of things about what model you should pattern your plant-based nutrition from, and also the vagueness of the term. So whole food plant-based to imply it's something that has a single ingredient like a zucchini or a tomato is a useful term. Whole food plant-based, no oil is a term that's thrown out there. And plant-based opens the door to eat some meat? In some people's world, it does. Um, John Mackey, founder of Whole Food and I can call him a friend. He just ate in my restaurant a few weeks ago. He has recently come out with a really good book called The Whole Foods Diet. And it's his own work with two doctors. Obviously, it has the same name as his company. And he talks about eating 90% or more plant-derived calorie sources. And he makes the point scientifically, and I think he's pretty close. That last 5%, if you ever did the trial that nobody's ever done, eat 90 to 95% plant-based and let yourself do a little pegan chicken or pegan fish or pegan uh, grass-fed beef, although I think grass-fed beef is a big BS topic personally, um, put that against a 100% plant diet, it'd be very hard to find the differences for health. The animal that died would know the difference and the environment that got destroyed would know the difference. But um, So there are uh, animal welfare issues here as well, always, certainly for you. That's where the word vegan is sometimes reserved if you don't wear leather if you don't drive a car with leather seats, and if you're in its purest uh, form, then. yeah, in its purest form, an ethical—you don't hear ethical plant-based eater. You hear ethical vegan, and I honor those people. And in fact, this city of Los Angeles is full of them, and, and they're wonderful spirited, caring people. I mean, it's pretty hard to knock somebody who really cares about the welfare of animals, uh, even if that's your dinner and they're disagreeing with you about your dinner. Uh, I'm moving in that direction. I'm actually in town for a charity event tomorrow night on that topic. And uh, I'm wearing non-leather clothes right now because I will do that to honor them. So let's talk about dairy, uh, fats, and cholesterol, and we're getting to a, a big area. Food here. fight. Food fight time, because as everyone is well aware, there have been so many headlines right. going back the last few years that maybe fat isn't so bad after all. Maybe cholesterol right. isn't so horrific as, uh, as we once thought and we were once told. So where do you stand? Okay, so you, you uh, kindly opened this wonderful and interesting can of worms that um, – and, and let me take just a couple of minutes. I am actually – I've always been a bit of a student of the history of medicine. I've written papers 
35 years ago on the topic. And about 10 years ago, I became a student of the history of Ansel Keys for no special reason. I started reading about him on the internet, and he seemed like a very bad man. And his Wikipedia biography was a very bad man. And for those that don't know by chance, Ansel Keys earned two PhDs, uh, one in um, Scripps and La Jolla and one at Cambridge. Um, and it then, was oceanography, was it? Yeah, oceanography was the California. first. Oceanography, then human physiology. Became quite an expert at um, both starvation and uh, adaptation to high-altitude physiology, which right before World War II turned to be a very good kind of concentration to have. He was quickly in, uh, put into a professorship at University of Minnesota in the football stadium under the stands. He got a little space to start doing research. He started studying what became a new observation in Minneapolis, which was executives having heart attacks. And the, about the same year, the Framingham, the famous study launched outside of Boston in 1948, he launched a similar study, much smaller, about 300 executives uh, in Minneapolis called the Minneapolis Executive Heart Study. And it was one of these first studies that tried to say, is a heart attack simply the consequence of aging, which is what the thought was? Or can you actually talk about and predict uh, factors that uh, lead to a heart attack, therefore possibly prevent them. And I will share right now one of my favorite quotes in the world, not 1948, but 1955, was a quote that said, a heart attack after age 80 is an act of God. A heart attack before age 80 is a failure of the medical system. That was 1955. That doesn't even apply today. We don't actually believe that today. It was right on the mark. That was Paul Dudley White who was talking about uh, President Eisenhower and his heart attack. So if you're younger than 80 and you've had a heart attack, this isn't to blame the victim, the patient. But the medical system fails you. They didn't identify the factors. They didn't teach you the lifestyle. They didn't teach you the prevention. They didn't do the right tests, which is a heart CT scan. But Dr. Ansel Keys went on and launched in 1958 through really just recently. They just reported 50-year follow-up with 17 colleagues around the world, some of the most esteemed nutrition experts in the world, Italy and um, Japan and other places, a, a prospective study of nutrition in about 12,000 men in the United States and around the world. The conclusion was, just to paraphrase, that – Total dietary fat did not relate to developing heart disease. That was their conclusion. It's important to say that. And Dr. Ansel Keys and his wife, Margaret, wrote three cookbooks that have a ton of fat in them. I've got them all at home. They're classics. He never was a low-fatter and anti-fatter. However, he parsed his you know, really unique database and clearly identified. First, he had it as a theory. Then it was shown in the seven-country study that saturated fat in your diet strongly correlates with raising your blood cholesterol, and that correlates with developing that first heart attack or fatal heart attack. So it was always saturated fat. The best example in his study was the island of Crete, the average calories were 40% fat, very high. The uh, East Finland, an area called North Karelia, the average fat in the diet was 40%. However, in North Karelia, it was butter, salami, and full-fat dairy. And in Crete, it was olive oil was the predominant source. There were very few heart attacks in Crete and the world's highest heart attack rate in North Karelia, Finland. He concluded out of data like that. It's not percentage of calories from fat. I'm not a low-fatter. Ansel Keys could say nowadays he'd wear a T-shirt, said that. I never was about low-fat. I was about low-saturated fat. He lived to 100. He lived to 100, almost 101. Margaret lived to 95. These researchers, Henry Blackburn plays in a, in a jazz band at age 93 in Minneapolis, Henry Blackburn. I've been emailing Alessandro Minotti and these other people. They're all in their late 80s and early 90s and doing – unbelievably well uh, following the lessons they learned in the 50s and 60s about decreasing. Where does most saturated fat come from? Eggs, cheese, full-fat dairy, butter, and meats, a little bit from coconut oil um, and avocado. But coconut oil is not a Mediterranean basin food. So anybody that puts coconut oil in a Mediterranean diet has done an Atkins trick on the public, in my opinion. It just doesn't exist. Tell me you see a coconut tree in Naples, Italy. It's uh, Naples, Florida, yes. Naples, Italy, no. So, I mean, my, my, my advice to my patients is reduce saturated fat in your diet. That's going to be reducing animal products and being a bit cautious with coconut oil. But if you want to enjoy a higher fat diet with avocados, olives, and nuts, go for it. We actually now have some data in the heart arena that from Dr. Joel Furman that can actually um, help assist 
actual reversal of heart disease. Now, this is completely consistent with what the American Heart Association Presidential Advisory published that incited a riot around the world because one paragraph out of 25 pages said maybe you should skip coconut oil because it's very high in saturated fat. But what about the confusion about cream and milk and the message that seems to be that, well, they're okay. They're not so bad. Don't worry about heart attacks. Don't worry about your cholesterol levels. That We were once told that those are the things that should be taken in more moderation. Yeah. You know, as we all know, nutrition science is very difficult. There is no randomized study of a, med- a great Mediterranean diet versus a healthy version, whole food plant-based diet. There's, you know, we have observations in Loma Melinda, observations in Okinawa. One of the strongest observations is back to Finland. And your listeners may not know this, but in the 1960s and early 70s, the highest heart attack rate in the world was in North Karelia, Finland. And 40-year-old guys out there lumberjacked with drop dead of heart attacks left and right. It was actually hurting the economy, which was based on a lot of uh, lumber predominantly. Both Dr. Ansel Key's team and uh, a couple of the researchers got together and said, we're going to do a public health measure in a province called North Karelia. We're going to post in every library, every grocery store, every uh, post station, please lower the amount of full-fat dairy, eggs, butter, don't smoke, walk, and let's see if we can change things. In five years, heart attack rates fell 85%, and that was sustained and still is sustained decades later. They expanded the North Karelia study to all of Finland. All of Finland dropped 50 to 70%. The largest dietary change in North Karelia was a drop in full fat dairy. That's been documented. I actually got an email from Walter Willett, chair of Harvard School of Public Health on that topic this morning. I read on the airplane, the single smoking reduction was important, was a little bit of it. Increased fruit consumption was important, was a little bit. Stopping eating so much full fat butter, cheese and dairy was the single biggest dietary change in Finland. But you can see why people are confused. Uh, as you say, dietary information is extremely complicated. The, the, the nuances beneath the surface are, are way above what most of us can grapple with. We're right. In Although, the store, we're in the market buying our foods. I, I what agree. are we supposed to think? I agree. I grieve over how confused the message – I mean, when I think what the public reads in headlines on magazines and um, – and the internet and all, uh, it, they are doing what I think they should do, throw their hands up and say, these guys are fighting, they can't figure it out, I'll just eat my pizza and my fries, because you know, maybe that's healthy according to you know, the uh, National Enquirer or whatever it is, and it maybe the New York Times or whatever, you, know, you see these health messages all over. I, I don't believe there's confusion. I believe the bulk of your diet is fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, legumes, 100% whole grains. We're not a gluten-free world if you're striving for optimal health unless you have the disease, celiac, or the sensitivity, which is less than 10% of the uh, public. Um, and anything you do beyond that that core, it's a, it's a U.S. food plate. It's a Harvard food plate. It's really not that controversial. But – you know, there's the little bits. Is coconut oil good or bad? These, you know, that shouldn't have got the headlines from the recent AHA, American Heart Association Presidential Advisory. It diluted out the main message of that advisory, which was cut back on meats, full fat, dairy, um, and uh, cheeses that are high in saturated fat because saturated fat stands up the test of time 60 years later. Ansel Keys was right, and he clearly was. He was right. Total fat is an important. Saturated fat is crucial. And that means animal products should be reduced, which is what every responsible diet should say. What sort of view on fasting? I love fasting. And I share with you because I have listened to your podcast and find your podcast uh, wonderful and informative. Well, thank you. I um, am a long-go groupie. Uh, and, for, and by chance, if somebody hasn't listened to the first and second podcast in the series, go back and listen to both. But uh, the interview with Dr. Walter Longo of USC is you know, one of his best. I've listened to many. I am completely on board that we need solutions to deal with obesity, overconsumption, um, food addiction, distortion of calories, processed foods, alcohol addiction, and a five-day modified fasting diet, a fasting-mimicking diet. Uh, as Dr. Longo has described and now published, is the best answer by far that I've seen. I have gone gaga with it. Personally, I've done four cycles, lost 18 pounds, feel great. Um, oh, that's interesting. I, I've done 13 cycles. I know. You're, uh, you're, you're, <laughs> I, had I known about it when you did or could have got it in the study, um, and I have now heard back from so many patients who've maybe been through their second or their third cycle. 
So I I'm actually curious, did it get I, easier for you as you did more and more cycles? Yeah, I, I actually I've missed now. I'm about six weeks from my last one, and amazingly, my weight has been maintained. And I'm so hungering for next week. I haven't had five days uninterrupted to really do it. It's a little difficult when you're on the road uh, traveling. It can be done. That's a downside because you do need to be near a kitchen. Yeah, I mean, I'm eating at plant food and wine in Venice tonight. I mean, I don't want to give that up for my minestrone soup pack. <laughs> um, but anyways, I, and anybody that doesn't know about, uh, it's a program called Prolon, P-R-O-L-O-N. They should check it out. Talk to your doctor or call the company and go through a little medical screening because a few people it isn't appropriate for. We should always but, say that, that it's not appropriate for everyone. Yeah, it's not a treatment. It's a dietary program that can assist your health. But I actually think it's by far the number one medical breakthrough of 2017. It actually has been hailed that recently by a few you know, journals. Uh, and that's compared to any drug, any surgery, any laser, any robotic. Eating in this pattern is radical and disruptive. I think it's going to change medicine fundamentally. And what's your view of, and I've spoken to a few people recently who say, well, actually, if they're going to fast, they'd rather completely fast, go on a complete water fast for 24, 36, or even three days, that, that they find the, the notion of eating some food actually more difficult than just going cold turkey onto a fast. Yeah. You know, um, I shudder a bit to say that maybe Dr. Longo got one thing wrong he said in your podcast. I mean, I'm very familiar with what's called True North Health Center in Santa Rosa, California, which for 1986, so 31 years, they've done water fasting, medically supervised, um, a week, two weeks, maybe three weeks, carefully monitoring blood pressure, blood sugar, blood cholesterol, or other health issues. And they've had stunning results and not deaths. It can be done, but that's a unique setting. You don't do that at home ever, ever, ever. It is clearly stressful. I know Dr. Longo was talking about gallstones, and I actually don't know the data at True North and an issue with gallstones. But, you know, there is no – I mean, if you sold a box to the public that had water bottles in it and said, here's your, here's your one-week, uh, you know, health support, I mean, it, it's not going to fly – and I people the point aren't going to do anything. it. And oh, the, I think the genius of this FMD, fasting mimicking diet, is you can function and you can go to activities and you can work. And you, you know, you're going to be a little bit hungry, which I think is a wonderful feeling to experience a little bit of hunger and know you can move through it because that's a skill you can use the next 25 days. I'll be a little hungry for the next 25 days because that actually felt pretty energizing and, you know, vibrant. And so I really love the psychology of less is more when it comes to food. There are, I was an overeating, super healthy guy. I ate too many superfoods. I didn't, now I struggle with that. I mean, am I going to let those broccoli sprouts go to waste in the refrigerator because they're broccoli sprouts? They're probably the single best food in the world and they're fresh. Well, I don't really need them. Well, and this comes back to my thought about moderation, that too much of a, a very good thing yes. can clearly be too much. Right. It is true. And we know that. I mean, if there's one lady ate five pounds of bok choy a day and she went into thyroid myxedema coma. She's the only one ever reported in the world to have that kind of problem. I think eating bok choy and kale is a pretty good thing to do. Yes, but even even too much bok choy could get you in trouble. Looking ahead to the future, um, let's just talk about you again for a moment. What is your own attitude towards your longevity? I'm here for the long run. I don't dwell on it a lot. I, f I wake up, I'm 58 years old, I'm on no medication. I'm, you know, maybe a couple pounds more than I was at the end of high school, which is better than it was four months ago because of fasting mimicking diets. I mean, I do wake up feeling good and I uh, express a little gratitude every morning. But my goal is to get through the day <laughs> and uh, incorporate a very busy schedule. I have a vibrant medical practice geared to early heart detection and reversal of atherosclerosis, uh, longevity in my practice. I love my patients. I mean, I write. I write books. I interview. I just launched my own podcast, TV shows. I mean, there's a lot going on. I want to do that for as long as possible. I mean, the word retirement doesn't exist in the Bible. I don't see a day. My best day is when I'm slammed. And I have time to be with my wife and have time to hug my dogs and at least text my children. They're grown and not always in my immediate vicinity. I was going to say slammed for some people equates to stress. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's not a fear of it. You know, if I could really shut everything off and hide away in Turks and Caicos for a week and I need to do that pretty soon. But I'm not hurting myself by, you know, 
this phase of my life that I feel so energized. So I hope to do this. I mean, uh, I mean, do I have a role model, uh, you know, a, another physician? There's a famous cardiac surgeon in Loma Linda who's about 103. He stopped operating when he was 95, but he's bright as a tack, does his lawn. That'd be cool. And just for anyone who doesn't know, and I've mentioned it many times, uh, Loma Linda is a, a city just outside of Los Angeles, about 60 uh, miles away. And it is uh, one of those areas uh, of the world that is notable for its longevity. Average lifespan is about 10 years, 8 to 10 years longer than most. Americans. It's a remarkable community in, right. in that sense. And it comes back to diet, exercise, and uh, an element of spirituality, spirituality of, of lifestyle. community support. I think community is, you know, um, not always talked about. It was huge in the Blue Zones, huge in the Ornish program. I mean, uh, we can think of other places where, you know, having – there's a statement that if you want to walk uh, fast, walk alone. If you want to walk far, walk with another person. It's an African proverb. And it's true. To do something – uh, you know, a, a significant lifestyle change. You want to be with somebody and grab a friend if you can, if you can find. I mentioned spirituality there. I don't want to get too sort of deep into religion, but uh, how would you define spirituality as it applies to leading a good, healthy life that will promote longevity? Yeah, I think, it. you know, and for some people, it, it is formally synagogue, church, temple, mosque. For some people, it's prayer at home. Some people, yoga may do it in the community. And I know for some, it's music. I mean, a lot of it is music. And I actually use a lot of yoga music, kundalini music during the day that seems to raise my spirits without interrupting my thoughts about medicine because it's all in uh, Sanskrit, and I can understand most of it. But I think it go it meshes with gratitude. It meshes with you know appreciation that there's a miracle of life. I mean, you're sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and our cells are metabolizing, our mitochondria are creating, you know, ATP. Our brain is uh, you know firing, our kidneys are filtering. No, no, we don't think about that uh, you know very often, and we think about it when it goes wrong. So you know, uh, having a moment a day of some you know appreciation for your health. Appreciation for what you have, focusing on the positive, um, and ultimately that's some sort of spiritual practice. I mean, and obviously formal prayer is to some degree that enhanced. Do you meditate? I do. Yes, the answer is. But I do an unusual one. It's called the Curtain Kriya. It was developed, as far as I know, developed by a uh, physician who's an Alzheimer's expert in Tucson. Uh, it's called the Alzheimer's Prevention and Research Institute. But it's a 12-minute – I have an infrared sauna in my bedroom. So I like to – that's part of my longevity program is often 20, 30 minutes in an infrared sauna. And we can talk about why an infrared sauna, but huge science in Japan for cardiovascular health and infrared sauna. So I, I will sit there and do this 12-minute. There's a mudra, a little finger movement. There's a little mantra, satanama. It's, everybody uses the same mantra. But Dr. Um, Kalsa is his name, has shown at UCLA, studying his patients in Tucson, but take him to UCLA, that it lengthens your telomeres to do this 12-minute meditative practice. And it's phenomenally interesting research. He did that with, you know, Elizabeth Blackburn and the Nobel Prize winning researchers. So, and the, the uh, telomeres being the ends of your chromosomes, yeah, little, the, the shoelaces. Uh, the egglets of your shoelaces, the little uh, tips of your shoelaces. So, Which are indicative of, supposedly indicative of, of longevity. Right. So he, you know, what he did, he, and it's a very common model, he took stressed out um, caretakers of either elderly parents or disabled children, and they have short telomeres. They're living 24 hours a day stressed, and he taught them a 12-minute meditative practice, and their telomeres lengthened, which is such phenomenal and practical research. So. Just, just tell me about your sauna then. Oh, infrared sauna. If you were to read the Japanese College of Cardiology guidelines for the treatment of serious disease, congestive heart failure, coronary disease, it's called class one, the one that all Japanese cardiologists agree should be used. Infrared sauna is on the list with a daily aspirin and with medication and with don't smoke um, because they have put out 30 to 40 peer-reviewed scientific papers. They're all in English. You can read them um, about what infrared sauna does to blood vessel function, to cardiac function, your ejection fraction. These are all cardiology terms. The bottom line is patients walk farther, breathe better, and there's some data live longer if they participate. And these are often very sick patients. If they participate in infrared sauna, it's 15 minutes three times a week is the usual protocol, even sick people. And so... And what's it like inside an infrared it's dry sauna? Heat. It's dry heat. Dry heat. It's not the coals that you might see in a health club, and it's not steam. It's pan of infrared 
uh, emitting energy in the walls. Uh, you want to buy a good one because you don't want to get EMF, and these are rated to say they don't expose you to EMF, just infrared uh, length wavelengths. Um, they're a bit pricey to get a very good one, but uh, many health centers, and it's becoming a little bit popular to actually have like a, a center where you can rent an infrared sauna for an hour for $25. And there's good peer-reviewed science behind this? But good peer. Uh, for, for cardiac disease, very good. For hypertension, lowering blood pressure, very good. For pain, fibromyalgia, quite good. Yeah, now, weight loss too. We skipped over a little bit uh, the issue of, of stress when you said that some days you're just slummed. I'm curious, uh, to what extent do you think a certain amount of stress in our lives is positive for us. Yeah. Well, you know, if stress is goal setting, if stress is, you know, I happen to be in a field where I'm trying each day to help people so that, you know, my worst day still has at the end of the day things I can point to and hope that I've brought some information or diagnosis or therapy or value to people. Um, uh, but I think no matter what you do uh, and what field you're in, even attorneys, and I love attorneys, so I just have Doctors have to go there. Um, I agree with you. I mean, the life that's uninspired, the life that has no purpose, driver, passion, I mean, is uh, it may actually end up being a shorter life, too. I mean, that is one of the findings. I think there's, it's called the Harvard Longitudinal Aging Study that took um, about 900 men in the 1920s and followed them for a very long time and still follow. I think there's 50 of those 900 still alive at a very advanced age. But at age 50, the single thing they identified as being predictive of super longevity was a sense of passion and purpose at age 50 that still drove them to do more and more. I mean, if they had played out their hand and were retired and sitting, you know, playing cards and bored at that, it was not a very good predictor of survival. So. It's certainly something that's coming out to me as I do interviews for this podcast, including some very, very old people that I've spoken to. It's the purpose in their lives that it seems to be a common factor. That, right. that purpose continues. Um, we spoke to a 102-year-old lady very recently. Wow. She has a very full life. She goes out. She meets friends. She's in a book club. They read books. They get together. They talk about the book. She goes to dinner, and, and she has a string of appointments, maybe not wow. quite as many as you and I, but right. she lives a full life. And right. to me, that seemed to be a big part, from a spiritual aspect, that seemed to be a, a big part of why she just keeps on going. I think it's very important. Let me ask you about your, I can sense your enthusiasm for this. What motivates you every morning as you get out of bed to do your work? Partly, I feel I've learned to have a responsibility. I want to clear up confusion. And I, I, I strive to do that. So after about three to four minutes in bed, uh, giving some appreciation and gratitude, and I actually do that every morning before I touch my cell phone, uh, then I grab my cell phone and I scan any new medical data that might be on a certain internet site that I like. It takes about another four or five minutes. Often I'll tweet those out, maybe five, six, seven new studies that I'll read quickly later in the day. I might go back and read them more fully so that I, you know, I, I'm on top of things. I'll scan what some other people are saying on Twitter, my friends and my foes, keep on top of them, sometimes uh, uh, retweet and praise and sometimes take out the uh, – it's not so much a feather. It's more of a, a, a club and a hammer to uh, respond. And so, so you're a fan of social media? It's not one um, of the great ills of modern life? I've learned to enjoy it. It's, um, I, I find Instagram and Facebook wonderful, but Twitter to me is like a boxing ring. And uh, I engage and it's Top Gun and I, you know, and all. And I think, you know, it, how important is that? Well, it depends how many followers you have. Uh, you can reach, you know, so many thousands of people. It seems uh, to be important and people are looking for direction and all. Um, but engaging and discussing and debating and arguing is important in the field that you're in because as we've shown during this last 45 minutes or so, there are different views on crucially important aspects of your work. And unless right. we debate and expose those arguments, right. people are going to be confused. And I agree. And you know, it, it would be a value. And this is a shout out to people you've had on your show, like Dr. Malhotra. It would be unbelievable to get 50 to 100 people in a room and say, we're here to come up with one common statement we can all put out to the public. And very different people from very different perspectives that maybe previously have beat each other up. And this is the core that none of us knock. And it's going to be fruits, vegetables. It's probably legumes. It's going to be 100% whole grains for many experts. It's going to be water, tea, and coffee over sugar-sweetened beverages. We can come up with a core curriculum for the public to say, you know, follow these six steps 
and you know make sure that's 80% plus of what you do and you can fill in the other 20% based on which superhero in the room you prefer. And, and a big part of this is the communication to the public. It's all very well understanding from your perspective what is good and what, what works. But there often seems to me to be a barrier between what you're saying and look at the great swathes of people, I mentioned it earlier, who are suffering from obesity, from heart disease, from cancer, and seem not to know about what you're talking about. There seems to be a barrier between the education that you can share and what people actually understand. I agree. How do you you reach the person that isn't following Twitter and Facebook um, or isn't following the health sites? You know, they're going to get a minute or two headline you know, on the internet or on TV, and that'll and that's change. Dangerous. That'll change every day, right? And right. that's where that's why we're making no progress. Um, and I don't know the solution to it, but I, I will make one plea. One of my pet peeves, and I share this with Dr. Malhotra, is the horrible state of hospital food, which should be the best lab to teach the public, the employees, and the patients, this is the model you should take home with you. You know, you've been here for two days or three days with the employees for 20 years, and this is what you should pattern when you go home. We we fed you well. We had you standing desks. We had you walking 10 minutes an hour. Um, we turned the room dark so you could get a good night's sleep and follow all those at home. I, that would be the revolution we need to have. It should come from hospitals. And you mentioned uh, Dr. Malhotra. This is uh, Asim Malhotra. If you want to listen to that interview, it was episode three. Right on the podcast. And uh, you, uh, before we started to record, you said that you and he uh, have debated these issues. You agree on what, about 80% of what you both talk about? Sure. Yeah, we bo- actually, we're both interventional cardiologists. Uh, we both dislike sugar. He may be a little more than me, but everybody- He's quite passionate about everybody sugar. Everybody reasonable has to dislike added sugar. Even the American Heart Association dislikes added sugar. And even Dr. Ansel Keys in his cookbooks dislikes added sugar. And that's in the 60s and 70s. Um, so the d- area and of we differences like it, yeah, we like exercise and we like mind body stress I've been to POP we're probably the two only interventional cardiologists this is a town of 200 so I, I have a bit of a problem of making a example for the world from a town of 200 that might have 15 people over the age of 90 who knows there's only 200 there I've been there I've walked the streets they, the reason people go to POP is it has a great museum dedicated to the Mediterranean diet and dedicated to Dr. Ansel Keys so it's a bit of a, a, a you know a techies stop there's more interesting towns just uh, south is a town called Acciaroli of a few thousand that truly has a lot of longevity they eat rosemary with breakfast lunch dinner rosemary breakfast lunch dinner extremely high antioxidant food uh, source as an herb that you can add to your food. Um, So, I mean, the disagreement is when you watch his movie, The Big Fat Fix, and he's in the museum I was in maybe six months after him, which has the Mediterranean diet pyramid. This is the world's museum, the Mediterranean diet. He says, just take the bread away and put in things like coconut oil. That no longer is what was studied and what people have done. That's, that's you know, a modified Atkins diet of some kind. I just uh, do that study if you want to do it, but don't recommend that as a cardiologist with a whole lot of press. So we, we, we have gone at each other in a debate and uh, on social media. And social media, I go after him more than he responds. I love his message on hospital food. I love his message on reducing or eliminating added sugars. We all agree. But um, to stand in the New York Times holding a cup of coffee with butter and coconut oil and saying this is what a cardiologist does to me is you know, perverse in the message that it will provide to millions of people. As you move forward, do you have a big project coming up? Well, yeah. So I opened a large restaurant with my son about a year and a half ago. It is doing amazingly well that it's in Detroit. It's totally vegan, plant based, high-quality food with uh, a full bar. We now have a food truck. We're really in this. We're going to be food line. I want to see that expand. It's a fun project. It's a family project. And I dedicate a decent amount of my time every week there after I see my patients. I have many books. I just My fifth book is coming out in December called The Plant-Based Solution. There'll be a couple books after that. I have a goal to write a book on heart disease reversal, and that's not entirely nutritional. There are supplementary ways and detoxification ways to remove atherosclerosis from arteries uh, without a stent, without a balloon, without bypass, uh, of course. The the word reversal is creeping more and more into the debate these days, isn't it? We talk about prevention, of course, which is important, but reversal – 
in itself. Yeah, my meme is don't manage disease, reverse it, because most of these chronic diseases can be modified, if not outright reversed, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus included. It may take huge lifestyle and dietary changes. That's where you can't be moderate. You want to reverse diabetes, you're going to be extreme. You want to reverse lupus, you're going to be extreme. Uh, and there's only a few case reports of some of those autoimmune diseases completely responding, but they're usually written by physicians who are describing their own personal journeys. Um, other projects, I've just launched a podcast. Uh, let me get it down a little bit. I'll ring you up. What's, what's the it's name called of the Heart Doc VIP. V for vegan, I for integrative. P was going to be for pissed off, but I changed it. <laughs> I changed it to preventive because uh, they said I might have trouble getting sponsors if I say I'm going to say it might win you a few show. more listeners as well. Yeah, so Heart Doc VIP, just, I just recorded my first episode. And how are you finding the podcasting experience? I have done a lot of TV. I'm a Fox TV reporter in Detroit once a week for five minutes and a lot of podcasts. So Talking on a microphone is a, is a joy for me. And I'm really interested to interview. Uh, I'll just say one last thing. We started something up in Detroit called the Plant-Based Nutrition Support Group. Almost four years ago, one guy called me and said, I eat this crazy radical heart disease reversal diet, but I'm lonely. Can we get a little support group together? And we plan to have 20 people in our group. We're now 4,000. That's the largest plant-based nutrition group in the world. We meet every six weeks. We have a visiting dignitary come in because their auditorium will have seven or 800 people. So there are so many people that have transformed their life in Detroit and can talk about 80-pound weight loss, end-of-diabetic medicine, return of erectile function, blood pressure control, absence of angina. I want to interview some of these people. You know, how did you have the guts to do what others are struggling with? You know, what, what was the first two weeks like when you tried to change from your turkey sandwich on white bread to, you know, a tempeh, collard wrap. I mean, you know, what did it taste like if you remember? So there's just great opportunity to interview what I would call some real health transformers, health heroes, good mm. people, because that's what people need. They need to believe that well, people need, it. I think, inspiration. Right. And, uh, but inspiration based on positive science. Right. Absolutely. And proven science. Absolutely. And, you know, we're always going to learn more. But I, again, I think even the most opposing voices in this diet heart world as the food aspect is called could come to an agreement that would help you know the public realize where it's not a total war we're actually fighting for the periphery it's a common goal it's a common goal i think everybody truly has probably good intentions at their heart we haven't talked about exercise uh, w how much exercise do you do and what, what do you do yeah so i used to be the 4 30 a.m alarm clock get to the gym by five warrior hour class hour something um, but i gave up too much sleep so about five years ago i put sleep on the map. And so I'm usually 20 to 30 minutes maximum, often 20. A lot of it is the high-intensity interval training. And I do a yoga flow every day called the Five Tibetans. It's an ancient yoga flow centered on spinal flexibility and mindfulness. But there's some data that it may improve arterial health and arterial flexibility. It's wild. So it's a very simple flow. Anybody can go on YouTube and watch a couple of examples called the Five Tibetans. So it's a yoga flow. Then it's maybe 15 minutes of HIIT and I'm done and, you know, I'm on my way to work. But I've had 90 more minutes of exercise. And I find that it gives me energy. I just was able to run the beach for an hour nonstop. So it seems I haven't lost my, you know, my capacity to do more, but it's enough because I do, you know, I, number one goal I have when I exercise is don't hurt myself. And every trainer I've been with tries to reach that goal. Do so. no harm. I do. I, you know, as soon as your back goes, cause you lifted a clean jerk a little too much, you know, that changes your life. I, I can't be in the gym if I'm in pain. So I, I try and avoid pain. And crucially, it seems that most of this exercise that you do is something you can do on the road. You, you travel a lot, you can modify right. what you do. Yeah, the Tibetans work in a hotel room. I stand nonstop. I have standing desks everywhere. I'm a fidgeter. There's some data. If you fidget, it's English data. 50,000 women in England asked 20 years ago, do you fidget? Do you not fidget? Those that said I fidget sitting in a chair had less cardiovascular disease 20 years later. Simply shaking your legs, Just fidgeting, twirling your chair, getting up to get a drink of water, coming right back. You mentioned stand-up desks, yeah. which is something I've, I've been a proponent of for quite a long time. I've got a stand-up yeah. desk next to my treadmill desk, wow. so I kind of alternate between the two when I'm right. working in my home office. Are there proven benefits? I mean, is there a randomized study? I mean, there, there are associations. You know, the number of hours a day a person sits has been associated with cardiovascular disease, with developing diabetes, with obesity, with brain health. So there's associations. Could it be the person that sits longer drinks more Coke and the person that stands more drinks more spring water? Maybe. You know, these always is an issue. But I think it's pretty obvious that 
you know, um, our metabolism slows and changes with prolonged sitting without intermittent movement. So five minutes an hour, 10 minutes an hour, and even this fidgeting. Yeah. But yeah, standing desks have also been shown to lower low back pains, you know, probably the most common reason people are going to their doctors. So there's no reason for now about $250 or make one on your own. Get, you know, uh, I always at a restaurant will be at the bar because I'll work at standing at, you know, the chest high level with a laptop. So always looking for that standing, you know, place to uh, take up ten or fifteen minutes. Is it proven? No, I don't think we need the study. You know, we don't need parachute randomized studies. We don't need a standing randomized study. And, and again, I would use the word moderation because you yes. can't stand up or long, walk yeah. at your desk all day. You do right. need to sit down. I agree. A little bit of everything. And my psyche, my kind of unscientific approach to this is that for most of the time, it's standing or, or walking. But then you kind of reverse what you, other people would do is that as you go and have a break and you walk for 10 minutes, my break is actually maybe sitting down for 10 minutes right. during the space of the hour or at points during the day. And it, it seems to work for me. Not right. necessarily going to work for everyone, but I think it's a, a good habit to get into. And I was, I'm amazed going to medical meetings, medical conferences, how people are still able to sit and not move. And it's you know so culturally appropriate to do that. And three of us are at the back of the room just pacing. But uh, we got a lot of work to do to transform health around the world. But we've talked a lot about a lot of really good steps to get there. Well, I was quite proud of my uh, South by Southwest uh, talk, which I actually gave from a, a, a treadmill desk Excellent. on the platform and encouraged people to stand around the edges of the room as opposed to sitting. And it was, it was a fun experience. I've, I've, I've done the same thing, actually. And I wrote a 300-page book on a standing treadmill desk. You know. Oh, did you? I did. I wrote the entire book called The Whole Heart Solution on a standing – on a treadmill desk specifically. Right. Oh, yeah, a mile an hour. Yeah. Look, this is bit we could go on, but this has been fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. Well, it's truly an honor because you've had some just amazing guests, and I know you're going to continue to do that. So the fact we could work this out, thank you for making it work. Really good to see you, and best of luck with all your projects in the future. Too. Thank you. And if you'd like to comment on this interview or make suggestions for future episodes, you can contact us through our website, LlamaPodcast.com. You can also follow us, leave messages on Facebook and Twitter at Llama Podcast. And if you're listening via iTunes, we'd really appreciate a, a five-star review if you feel that we deserve it. And it all helps to keep the podcast alive and perhaps you can invest in our longevity. Many thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.